0: Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Steve Barry is our guest this morning. I was thrilled to track him down. One of the nicest, most humble guests I've ever had, and, one, and also one of the most successful. His name is on so many hit records, including number actual number one hit records. It's really an astonishing list of, of great music. Uh, the whole program today, we did feature his stuff, and if you want to hear the whole program head to wfmu.org slash michael and you can hear all of the music uh, that i played related to steve barry this is a a fantastic contrast to the interview i did with pf sloan steve's former partner This about two and a half years ago i interviewed pf sloan right before he passed away from cancer no one knew he had cancer i don't even know if he knew he had it when i interviewed him i don't think he did uh, and he, he has a fantastic story and i mean that quite literally it's almost there are some things in it that are hard to believe uh in this interview with steve steve directly refutes some of those things just straight up says they aren't true Uh, i think there's some things that uh, pf sloan said to me that i figured weren't true like he talks to beethoven all the time but maybe he thinks he's talking to beethoven i it's kind of complicated, but, you know, if you haven't heard the, my interview with P.F. Sloan, go to org slash Michael and listen, because it's really bigger than life. Uh, but it was great to hear the other, more grounded side of the story, what happened to them, what happened to their partnership, and uh, the amazing thing is that Steve Barry had even greater success after his partnership was over. And I think... Part of the legend of P.F. Sloan is that he self-perpetuated, was that he did the lion's share of the work. But it's very clear here that Steve had his own amazing career, uh, completely separate from P.F. Sloan. Uh, Some great music, great guy, like I said, totally humble, great music business stories here. uh, A a huge part of of why 60s pop is so great, and 70s pop. Uh, Here he is, my interview with Barry. All right, there is meet me tonight, little girl from Philip and Stephanie. You can hear uh, Steve Berry laughing in the background. I take it it's been a while since you've heard that one.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time. That was basically done at the time that the Beatles were starting to, you know, to kind of take over the, the whole business. And um, my partner Phil Sloan and I, we had been writing primarily uh, surf songs, you know, for Janet Dean. And we sang background vocals on uh, Little Old Lady from Pasadena and a bunch of their records. And, and you know, we were writing these the surf music that was popular at that time. And when the Beatles started to happen, you know, we decided, well, let's do some demos in a, um, you know, in a, a kind of English kind of a mood. We, we sang it ourselves and we even put on a bit of an English accent. And <laughs> uh, it wound up coming out as a single because, um, I don't know, Lou Adler who was my mentor and uh, the head of the label Dunhill Records that we were on? Felt that you know it could be a hit, so they put it out as a single.
0: Yeah, uh, it's just part of an amazing story. Uh, you have been a a, rec- a writer, a record producer, a record executive, a lot of things uh, throughout the in the music business. I believe you were born in Brooklyn, 1942. Why did your family move to California?
1: Uh, my dad moved to California for uh, for work. You know, to try to get a job out here, even though. You know, at, at the time, you know, I was very upset about it. It meant leaving, you know, friends and and leaving the Brooklyn Dodgers on my, my team, <laughs> who fortunately moved, who fortunately moved out here a couple of years after I did. But that was the reason that
0: we moved out here. And, and was there music in your house? Were your folks musical? Were they? Did they have tons of records? Always music in the house. My mom, you know, played the piano.
1: I grew up on on songs. Basically, the great American songbook, you know, the Cold Borders and the Irving Berlins and Rogers and Hearts. And the, the, you know, we always sang those songs around the house. Everybody in the family sang. So much like many of the, of the songwriters of the Bill Building era, you know, we all had that kind of in our, in our uh, family. And um, so, you know, kind of just stuck with you. Uh,
0: While while still a teenager, you recorded a few solo singles on Rona Records. This would be like 1961, 62. A few records with Carol Connors from the Teddy Bears. How did you break into show business once you got to California?
1: I actually, my my goal was to be a disc jockey. You know, when I first heard Buddy Holly and and, and the Evelie Brothers, even, even though Elvis was impressive for me, but those two in particular out of you know and i guess it was 1956 1957 you know i i love those records so much i felt like i want to be part of that and i want to be making music like that so i i started to take uh not lessons but i learned a few chords on on basically on a on a ukulele and then a four string guitar and started writing some songs eventually i put some demos together on a tape and sent them around and um yeah, I got. I wound up with a with a you know, it's like a small publishing deal, and uh, that was kind of the start of it. And then I started writing with various other people.
0: You make it sound so easy. I mean, I, I know there was a lot of a lot more indie labels. There was a lot a lot more opportunity, but was it fairly easy to do what you just said?
1: Well, it wasn't that it was easy. It was just that I fell into it. You know, a lot of it is timing and luck. You know, I, I guess some of the songs I was writing were fairly good. What <laughs> happened was I, I I met I met uh, Carol Connors, who I knew. We went to the same high school, Fairfax High School. And you know, she was she had already had a number one record with the Teddy Bears. You know, to know them is to love them. So we 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 did a couple of demos, and the owner of the record store that I worked at, which was Norty's Records, it was right next to the high school. He took a demo and took it to a an independent promotion man or a guy that worked at a promotion at promotion in Los Angeles. His name was Russ Regan and Russ Regan liked this record. And he said, I'm going to put it out on my own little label, independent label. And so Russ Regan, who turned out to be a guy who, you know, was the president of uni records and signed Neil Diamond and Elton John. But at this time he was just the promotion guy. So he signed, he put this record out. We started to get airplay on, uh, the big station in town which was w b and uh, lou adler who was then running screen gems um, music heard it and and also uh, a coltics re- label he heard it and he liked it and he picked it up and wanted to put it out by the time he was ready to put it out the record had already peaked in los angeles so he said you know do you have any other songs and i played him some other songs and he he said you know i'd, I'd like to sign you as a songwriter so you know, at that point, um, getting paid fifty dollars a week for basically what was my hobby was sounded real good.
0: <laughs> yeah, you you kind of alluded to this earlier. For guys your age, born in forty two, I would imagine. You know, you talked about the Great American Songbook, and it's funny how you you know we think of sixties pop as kind of the the greatest. Uh, era for pop music and for the development of pop music but it's funny that you didn't have 60s pop to influence yourself because you were creating it so that all of that amazing pop music was created by guys who grew up on the american songbook
1: pretty much so you know when when i do um i teach uh, courses now on you know on music and you know, i kind of break it up in various different periods naturally there were those the songs of the of the songbook that that a lot of the Young writers, uh, Carol King, um, you know Jerry Goffin, and Carol King, and um, uh, man and Weird Wild, and, and um, you know all, all those young writers of the Brill Building were writing all the hits for mostly black artists during the early parts of the of the '60s. All grew up on the same kinds of music, and there was that period of of growth, certainly from '55, '56, up until you know about 1960. You had you know, more experimental kind of R&B, the real, you know, the, the coming of age of, our, of of rock and roll music. And then it kind of softened up from the, the 60s up until the Beatles came along. You know, it, it got a little bit more uh, tuneful and yet we're trying to say a little bit more in the songs that we were writing other than, you know, I'm walking, yes, indeed, you know, than, than those early R&B uh, rock and roll records, which were fantastic because it was it was the beat. Um, And then from 1964 on, once the Beatles showed up, everything changed and, you know, and nothing has been the same ever since. It just keeps changing.
0: Yeah. Uh, So you mentioned Lou Adler. I believe it was Lou's idea to team you up with P.F. Sloan. What was your first impression of Phil Sloan?
1: I was in awe of his ability to write melody because I was very limited you know, I had hundreds of ideas and titles and ideas for songs, and Lou thought were great, but I only knew these three or four chords, although Neil Diamond made a you know, great <laughs> career only using a few chords. But, um, you know, he, he was a lot better than I was. Uh, so anyway, uh, I was impressed with what Phil could do. He was a very talented singer as well. And so when we started writing some songs together, it, you know, it just clicked.
0: Yeah, so I find it fascinating when you do the uh, the research about you. You know, there are records that uh, are by Philip and Stefan, the Rally Packs, the Wildcats, the Street Cleaners, the Rincón Surfside Band, the Lifeguards, and more. And these are all just basically the two of you guys under different names, right? Right. You know, I mean, these were just demos
1: um, that we were, you know, we were writing for other people and. Uh, There were times when we couldn't get records done, you know, by the acts that we wanted wanted to have record them. And because Lou was, you know, a very powerful individual in in the record industry, if he felt something had a chance of being ahead, he said, hell, let's, you know, let's put it out and see what happens. And so we did that with a few records. And that's how we started the grassroots
0: um, started that way, you know, it's basically Sloan and myself. Just another one of those fake bands. Were you guys still only making $50 a week? I mean, did you get paid a- as the artist on those records, or was it just part of the deal?
1: Well, no, It was, if, if any of those records would have become a big hit record, you know, we would have dealt with it at that point at this point we're just looking to get songs played and and get songs on the radio. So, you know, as, as each year went on, you know, we started to get a little bit more money and then once we started to hit with the, you know, like where were you when I needed you and, and uh, you know, and then even destruction and whatever, then it kind of all just blew up so quickly, you know, it's just that all of a sudden we were not only um, getting our advances, but we were making royalties as well.
0: I think the biggest of those uh, sort of fake bands was the Fantastic Baggies. Uh, I was I looked up the Fantastic Baggies on uh, Wikipedia, and the first two sentences were something like, the Fantastic Baggies were an American surf band created by P.F. Sloan and Steve Barry. The group released several unsuccessful singles. And I thought, like, well, th- I love this band, and I love their records, and it's funny how it just gets reduced to these two sentences. You know, it's a- there's some fantastic yeah. records there.
1: Well, the, the one record the Tell Him I'm Surfing did, um, you know, I think that made the national charts. It was, did very well here in Los Angeles, but, you know, we, we were just never, well, let's face it, basically what we were doing is what everybody else was doing at that time, which was trying to imitate the Beach Boys. So, um, uh, you know, and some of the songs that we wrote were done by acts like Bruce and Terry. We wrote a song called Summer Means Fun, uh, and they had a, you know, like, a, I think a top 40 uh, top 50 chart record national chart record with that so we were writing these surf songs and Janet dean were doing a lot of our songs as well um so you know we we kept trying but um to be honest with you you know you had uh one well the, neither one of us had ever been surfing in our lives um <laughs> i came from the i came from new york and you know sometimes i listened to the original um, demo that we did on summer means fun. And I'm saying summer means fun. I'm sounding like I've got my New York accent. (laughs) The last place I would be from would be Malibu. But um, you know, that's, that's what we were doing at the time. We're just trying to write songs for, you know, for various different artists.
0: Yeah. Uh, So uh, Lou Adler forms, I think he founded Dunhill records and he brought you guys over and, uh, the amount of work in this small period of time is truly, it's unlike anything. I mean, I really can't think of any other artist that did this much. In the next, I don't, I'm going to say, two and a half or three years, uh, you had songs cut by The Accents, Connie Stevens, Anne Margaret, Betty Everett, Dickdale, Bruce and Terry, The Ripcord, Shelley Fabre, Fetty and the Dreamers, Penny Arcade, Herman's Hermits, Paul Revere, The Kingsman, Johnny Rivers, Barry Maguire, Searchers, Tommy Rowe, The Thomas Group, Sandy Nelson, The Ventures, Hugo Montenegro and his orchestra, Gary Lewis, K-Star, The Hondales, Mamas and the Papas, etc. I mean, it's a really, really big list. You must have written a easily a couple hundred songs. What was the work ethic like? How did you get that many songs written in such a short time?
1: Well, first of all, we would meet, uh, you know, I mean, it's a a structure that you form. We met every day, not always in the office that we had, because we felt we were more productive when we would write in um, in Phil Sloan's um, dining, in the dining room in his house. It was like a kitchenette, because it had a great echo sound. So, The guitar, everything always sounded bigger in there. And we would just sit there and come up with ideas. I had a book, you know, filled with different titles and and, um, whatever. And then we'd sit down and just pick a title. And then Lou would tell us, you know, uh, so-and-so, Herman's Hermits need a song. And, um, you know, why don't you guys try to write something for them? And then I'll tell you, you know, it's like a strange story about that. We met with the people from MGM, and they were doing this film uh, with Herman's Hermits. And they said, you know, we... We'd like to do something because this was just coming slightly after the Beatles had Hard Day's Night. And so I remember this producer telling us, you know, if you could write something, you know, kind of off kilter, like it's a hard day's night, something, you know, with a kind of a weird title, we'd like that. And I said, I, you know, I have this title for kind of a positive, negative kind of idea about a girl um, called, you know, She's a Must to Avoid. And they said, oh, that's great. That's exactly what we want. So we wrote that song, as well as a few others, and we went into the studio, we cut the songs with them. And then they, uh, apparently, that was going to be the name of the movie. So they screened it, and when they screened it, the reaction was so bad to it, that (laughs) they came back and they said, we we can't use that song, we have to change it. And we said, why? They said, because it makes it too easy for reviewers to say this movie is a must (laughs) to avoid. So... (laughs) So even though it came out as a single and became, you know, a hit, we uh, it, they wound up changing the name of it to Hold On. But um, you know, from something that they loved, it was something that they couldn't use. But anyway, it, it was Lou Adler really that you know that he knew Mickey most, who was the producer of of the Hermits, and um, he got us into you know to work on that project.
0: Yeah, uh, there, you know, I had uh, P. F. Sloan on this show, just really a few months before he passed away and uh mm-hmm. you know he's a a really unusual guy uh to say the least uh there was sort of this idea you know he's he's sort of remembered as this mad genius and your contributions sometimes i think are minimized and you know looking at your whole picture and I, and we'll talk about this later I, I, you you really had more success after your, um, and I think people don't know that, after you and uh, Phil stopped working together. But tell me, when you were still working together, what was the division of labor? Uh, How did the songs get written? Who did what? I pretty much came up with the
1: titles for the most part and most of the lyric. Phil would come up with the melodies. And sometimes I would, uh, you know, a song like Where Were You and I Needed You, uh, which was one of our first you know, kind of hits, you know, like a top 40 record, The Grassroots. Uh, that was a song I pretty much wrote by myself. Um, and uh, I don't know if Phil added anything to that. And on the other hand, Eva Destruction was came about when I gave Phil a lyric of a song called Something Like Nothing Changes. And in it, I had the lines, even if you left here for four days in space, You know, when I, when I come back, it'd be the same old place. And it starts off being about a guy that, and a girl that, you know, just keep having differences all the time and nothing changes. They try to get things better. And the second verse went off to a little bit of a political thing, which I was never into. And so I gave that to Phil and I said, hit work, work on this. And the next morning he came back with the song, Eva destruction, which was totally, you know, other than those two lines of mine, (laughs) it was absolutely nothing like anything I wrote. And, um, At that point, um, it was my belief, honestly, that something changed about him that, uh, you know, after writing that particular song, you know, unfortunately, tragically, Phil um, got into drugs at at, at a time when a lot of other people were out here. People feeling that, you know, in order to write like the Beatles and whatever, you know, everybody, you know, was trying to see if if, uh, dropping acid or whatever, you know, made you, you know, let you write better or whatever. All I know is from that point on his, his dream was to be the next Bob Dylan. He wanted to be the next, um, you know, the next guy, the next big importance, um, you know, singer songwriter and, um, didn't want to write for pop songs, the kind of songs that we were writing anymore. So, um, you know, I said, well, okay, if that's what you want to do, then, um, you know, fine, you know, I'll, I'll, um, why don't we do an album? You keep writing those songs and the songs we write together, we came up with the name P.F. Sloan to try to make it look like it was different than the same guys that are writing, tell him I'm surfing, because we felt like if, if even destruction, if people see it's written by the guys that are writing all these surf songs and bubblegum songs, you know, it's not going to be taken seriously. So we came up with the idea of, of having him be, you know, the sole, um, uh, writer on those things even though we we shared the royalties um and and that was the start of it but at that point you know it, the the partnership that we had which was so great up until that point it just all changed he started disappearing he didn't show up when we were doing um uh you know our, our production and our mixes and he just you know i mean I'm, to be honest with you it just totally changed and and Got very, very, um, I mean, it was just so strange. I just could not make sense of what he was saying or what he wanted to do. And, um, he seemed to be very frustrated. And, um, so, you know, eventually he just kind of disappeared. And, um, you know, so I, I told him I was going to go in, I'll finish up the grassroots sesh, uh, sessions that we're working on. And I said, but, you know, I'll, we'll still give both of us credits, but, you know, you got to get yourself together. And, and we tried to really get him help at times. And I think at at one point he did go in to get to get some help. But um, he changed from that point on and he just wanted to go a different direction. And uh, my love was just making, you know, pop songs and and I love just making music. So I just got more into the production end of things. I couldn't write as much anymore because when um, things were changing so quickly that um, at one point our company became so hot when um when the mamas and papas you know when when we signed them and that that story was amazing also because they they were signed because barry mcguire who had recorded eva destruction brought them in to sing background on his record and then we we heard them and we called lou and said you got to come down and and hear these people that barry brought in they had been sleeping in their car all night um they had no money nothing couldn't even afford guitar strings and so Lou came down, heard them, and he immediately signed them. And then, um, you know, that this was before um, Phil kind of went off uh, on his own. We were still working together at that point. So, you know, things were just changing so quickly. And then um, eventually, Dunhill Records was sold to ABC Records, you know, which was the big parent company from the East Coast. Then, and they were now in charge. And at that point, Lou, who, you know, like made a lot of money, decided he wanted to leave. He didn't like to work under... You know, under the umbrella of, of anybody else. So he went off to start Old Records, and he and I said, you know, just, and you know, Lou, I I want to go with you. I you know, I don't want to stay here. And he said, no. He says you're under contract. You got to stay here. But he said, but you're gonna you'll take over my job. You're gonna become the the head of A and R for the label. And that's how you know. So all of a sudden now, hmm. uh, I don't have time to write songs anymore. I'm um you know I'm running a record label
0: as an A and R man. Well, let me back you up just a little bit, because I want to talk about some of these records. And it was amazing that, beside writing all these records, you were also producing a lot of these records, and I assume making demos of a lot of these songs that that you wrote, or all the songs that you wrote. So I want to ask you about specific records, and feel free to just say a sentence or two about the artist, or about the sessions, or something about uh, each one. Tell me about working with Jan and Dean.
1: That was one of the first things we did when when we signed with Lou, because... We were writing some surf songs with them, and Jan, who was really a, a very brilliant, um, you know, producer, very musically gifted, except that he wasn't a great singer, and and Dean was like, you know, pretty good, but they weren't great singers, and and they felt that uh, they would like us to sing backgrounds, or at least Jan did. Um, so Jan just brought us into the studio. It was one of the first things we did. He was working on Little Old Lady from Pasadena at the time. And um, you know we we did the backgrounds on that, so we became very friendly with them, and um, you know they uh, Jan liked a bunch of the songs that we did. Also, when I don't know um, if you if you know about the uh, you know the, the the Tammy Show that in 1964 when when there was this big um, closed circuit television show called the Tammy Show. Where it was the first time I think ever that American acts played with English acts. The Rolling Stones were on the show, and um, every every the Beach Boys and uh, and um, James Brown. It was an incredible show, and we were asked to write the theme song for that movie. And so what we did was um, we um, you know wrote the, wrote the song, and we also sang some backgrounds on the you know on the um, on the show as well.
0: Uh, tell me about Barry McGuire, Eve of Destruction, went to number one. Did you guys know when you wrote it, did you know when you heard him cut it that it was going to be a giant hit? Because, And were you sort of write, trying to write a song f- to express what the generation of kids was feeling, or were you just trying to have a hit, or, or both?
1: Well, we, we decided, you know, because we were, you know, like songwriters for hire, the idea was to try to write songs for... Um, you know, for whoever was looking for songs. The problem was, you know, in writing those kind of songs, even though we wound up getting a lot of songs that the Turtles recorded, you know, for artists at that point, it was becoming more important for an artist, because of Bob Dylan, that an artist be considered someone that, that wrote and sang their own songs, that it was, you know, this was just who they were and this is, you know, what they were, this was what they were feeling and where they were coming from so when Even Destruction was written, that was really Phil. You know, I got to say that was his idea, his song, and mostly his thoughts. He only took two lines of mine in that song. So um, uh, none of us at the time thought we would even be able to get it played. And so we were recording the album with Barry McGuire. And this is when Barry brought in the Mamas and Papas and Luke started to work with them. And we were left alone to work with, uh, with Barry. And we had just started really getting into the production end of things, thanks to Lou. So we're, we're working on this record. And, you know, we know what the A side of this record's going to be. I don't remember which one of our songs it was, but we needed a B side. And Lou said, why don't you do that, you know, teach Barry that Eva Destruction thing. And we'll throw that on the B side of the record. So we say fine, um, and that night we run the song down for him. We already had our demo track, and he sang the the lead, reading it from the the lines that we gave him. At times not getting it right. At times we'd be punching in, you know, uh, to get various different lines right. And and he's looking, and he's going, he's uh, in world, you know, he's he's stretching <laughs> out things. And and we said just learn it and then take it home tonight and then tomorrow we'll come in and we'll do an actual vocal on it and then we'll add instruments and we'll finish it up and this is the true story now I'd bring in this this tape the you know and all we had was reel to reel tape the next morning I'd bring it into the office I was the first one you know in and Jay Lasker was the president of of the of Dunhill Records at the time. Came by my office and said, what are you playing? I said, that's just the thing we're doing for Barry McGuire for the B side of the record. And he said, uh, let me, you know, uh, let me hear it. Let me take it into my office and listen to it. Well, all I know is he takes it in. About three or four hours later, Lou Adler comes into the office and I hear screaming and yelling and carrying on. What had happened was Jay gave the tape to one of our promotion men. The promotion men brought, he brought it over to the big number one station in town to see what they thought of it. If they would play a record, you know, protesting everything like that, you know, and and we thought it would be a problem. And what happened was they, they put it right on the air unbeknownst to us. They put on this, this demo, they recorded it and put it on. And within an hour, it became the number one most requested record on, on the radio. We didn't even know about it until Lou came in. He said, I just heard, you know, how did, how did it get there? I said, I don't know. I just gave a tape to Jay Lasker. So, make a long story short without a final mix with a rough vocal um we learned very early that you know if something is right and the timing is right and whatever you know it could be a hit without even finishing it because we never really finished that record and that's 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 the demo vocal that he put on there i mean you know we barely spent any time and we thought it was just a b-side and before we know it i mean we asked there's radio station. we said you know it's not finished we'll finish it and get you a finished record and they said fine we'll, we'll you know they said but don't bother we can't stop playing this it's getting more requests than the Beatles so that yeah. was the beginning
0: that's amazing uh, you mentioned the Turtles You Baby was probably your biggest uh Hit with them. Tell me about this this group, The Imagination Summer in New York. It's one of those records I uh, of yours that I love. Uh, I think Bones Howe, who was a guest on this show, uh, produced the record. Is that a real band or is that just you guys?
1: No, that was just me. Um, <laughs> Bones, <laughs> Bones, 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 uh, who you know was like a nut, one. Of, also, one of my mentors, Bones, was amazing uh, producer, and you know was an engineer for us, and you know taught me so much. And one day he said, You know, why don't why don't you record something, you know, as a group? And I said, I don't know. Phil was always the much better singer, you know, I sound I sound too, you know, bubblegummy. you know. And I did have this song, you know, called Summer in New York and he said, I love that, you know, let's let's record that. So, you know, that was that was his idea and um and uh, I just sang on it and he <laughs> produced it.
0: It's a lovely record. Let's talk about secret agent Man Johnny Rivers. Again, it's one of these records that's been covered a billion times. You know, it's a, it, right. I, I assume that was written to order?
1: Basically, yes. I mean, what happened was, again, thanks to Lou Adler, Lou was recording and producing Johnny Rivers. I think he was managing him at the time. And um, managed to get a situation where Johnny was going to sing the title song of this English television show. It was a big hit in England called Danger Man and it had been on the air there for a couple of years, and as a summer replacement, it was going to be here on CBS for about, I don't know, just for the summer, for whatever, for 10 weeks or whatever, and they wanted a theme song um, called Danger Man, so at, at the time, to be honest with you, when Lou said, you know, can you write a, a theme song, it came to me, because I had to write the lyric, called Danger Man, and I said, oh, Lou, you know, that's embarrassing, you know, we're we're you know, we're starting to write some great songs and everything. And, you know, we don't want to do this. He says, hey, you know, if they're willing to pay, you know, X amount of money. I said, Dip, we'll get right on it. So <laughs> we, uh, so all we wrote was a, a verse and a chorus. And, and the chorus was, um, look out, danger, man, because that was the name of the show. Um, at the last minute, um, CBS called and said, we, we're going to change the, the title of the show to Secret Agent Man. Could you change it? So we went in with Johnny and Johnny. You know, I mean, instead of Look Out Danger Man, he just, we punched in Secret Agent Man um, based and the, and the whole thing came on the idea. My my thinking is because I couldn't think of what to write about um, Secret Agent Man. But Lou said, you know, he says, look, think of James Bond. The reason that this is happening now is because this James Bond, and I was a tremendous fan of the James Bond movies. So I basically wrote it thinking about that. I wrote the lyrics anyway. Phil came up with that great guitar figure. Um, but, um uh, all, the, all we wrote was one verse and, and that one little chorus. So the show went on the air, and um, and after the summer, it went off. And that was the end of it. We thought we were through with that. But for season two, uh, the show was so popular, it came back for a second season. And when it did, Johnny Rivers called one day, called me at the office, and he said, you know, everywhere I go, people are asking me to sing Secret Age Man. He said, uh, all I do, I can only sing the one the one verse, he says, can you write me a second and third verse? And I said, well, would you put it on the B side of a record and, and at least make a record? He says, yeah, you got it. Uh, you know, I'll tell Lou I want to record it. And I said, great. So, you know, we wrote the rest of it. Johnny recorded it. And uh, again, you know, I mean, who knew? It was such a silly idea. Um, and yet, you know, it it, it uh, just clicked.
0: Yeah, um, it really good. Uh, I, I saw that you guys, uh, you and Phil produced the album, Drums a Go-Go from Hal Blaine. Uh, it's just one of the million little projects you guys worked on. Tell me about working with those Wrecking Crew guys, guys like Hal Blaine, uh, who really so important. You know, uh, all, you know, I would say 80% of all those records that I've mentioned, they play on, right?
1: Let me tell you something. Those guys, those musicians, and, you know, I mean, there was a large group of them. But um, until we went into the studio with them, for the first demos that we recorded, I I didn't think, you know, I, I had no vision in my mind that anything that I was involved with could ever sound as good as they made it sound. Um, I mean, Luke, again, put us with these guys that I guess he had worked with. And when we went in to do our first demos, we had three songs. Two of them were kind of um, surfy, poppy songs. And one of them was kind of an R&B song that we had in mind, maybe for somebody like the Ronettes or something like that. Um, and, um, Lou said, all right, go in and demo the songs. All we had was on, you know, I had the lyrics and, and Phil would play it on guitar. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll get to some musicians and you'll go in and cut three songs on, but you got to do it in three hours. But he says with these guys, we no problem. So, I mean, we go into the studio and this the first time we ever went in with any, uh, with any songs to demo, uh, we wind up with Hal Blaine playing drums, Joe Osborne playing bass, um, Larry Neckel playing piano. Um, and um, and I think Glenn Campbell played guitar along with Phil and those things. And they're doing this for like 50 bucks, um, you know, <laughs> a man for as demos. And for the demo singer, we sang the two pop songs, but we needed a female demo singer. And Phil gets gets us darling love, who at the time I, we had, I had no idea who she was. The only thing is, is that when she opened her mouth and sang our song, you know, and I heard it with that music, I said, you know, I I may be able to have hits in this business because these people are amazing. They're the ones that are making things hits and they were they were spectacular. The 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 album we did with Hal the Drums Go Go was that was Jay Lasker's idea. He was the president of the company. He was an old uh, an older um uh record guy and he had all these ideas of putting these albums together for you know for ideas of doing Disney songs and uh you know various different things we were you know i was my my brain was you know moving ahead towards rock and roll, but you know he he thought that um he could sell records with those things and and working with Hal was such a joy. we love doing it because he's one of the funniest guys he's one of the greatest uh, musicians you know you could ever work with.
0: Uh we've had him on the show. He's uh, he's he's still a riot and he's uh just full of great stories. Uh, uh Steve Barry is our guest today and uh you're so humble. Uh it's amazing considering all these amazing records that you worked on. Is there a a song or a record uh that you guys thought would be a hit that wasn't or one that you never thought would have been a hit that was?
1: Well, to be honest with you, more songs, you know, some the songs that became hits were mostly songs that that we didn't know could come hits some of my favorite songs that we wrote and you know i'm not going to be able to think of the titles now um i'm sure but you know some of my favorite things where i felt like well i love that lyric whatever you know never happened or or you know or we didn't even get them recorded so um you know lou lou uh, lou uh, you know, there was one song, I, I'm not sure which one it was, and I remember we recorded a demo of one of our songs, again, early in our career, and um, I, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was great. I thought it could be a hit, and um, and I told Lou at one point, I said, you know, Lou was trying to get it with some people. He said, nobody seems to, to connect with it. So I said, maybe if we put on, you know, a harmonica for the solo or, you know, I embellished the, the uh, demo, maybe put like a, an organ on and and he said to me, he said, you know something, you can't polish a turd. That was his <laughs> line. And and you know, and, and that, in essence, what he was saying is that the song is is the key to everything. And if people don't relate to the song, no matter what you do around it, it's probably not going to change things. Although some records become hits because they're just so well crafted and and sound so different. But it always came down to the song, and I and I learned that early with even destruction because I realized. Wow, this is like a, you know a half-ass demo with you know with a vocal not even as good as it could have been if Barry really had time to work with it. It's just that he had such a um, you know a, a, an urgency to his to his voice that that thing just worked. But um, yeah, so you know a lot of the songs that we wrote just uh, you know didn't become you know what I was hoping they be- would become. I never I never really had a chance to continue writing because. When Adler left Dunhill, um, and I was put in charge, I realized, well, if I'm going to be, you know, signing artists now to the label, and the first thing they told me to do was go out and find, sign some artists. Because I said to uh, Lou, I said, you know, I, I don't know how to, you know, do this. You know, I, I know how to write songs, and you know, we're following you. He says, go out, you know, you know good, you know good act when you are here. And so you know, I got lucky. The first act I saw, the first two acts I signed was Steppenwolf, and and the second one was Three Dog Night. So all of a sudden, you know all of a sudden, you know, we're with this really you know hot label, and uh, you know I'm this I'm this major A&R guy, but I can't I can't write songs and take them to these artists and say you know this is a great song because you know I can't be promoting my own songs to people. So I figured. You know, I got to kind of, I got to kind of just get into the production thing. I'll, I'll find other songs and uh, work it that way.
0: Well, let me let me ask you: in those crazy days, you're still in your early twenties when all of this, all of everything we've talked about so far has happened. What did you do with your money? I mean, did you buy a house? Did you buy sports cars? What what was your thing?
1: Uh, n- no, I was never into that. You know, I, I mean, eventually, yes, I eventually, I, you know, I bought a house, but. You know, it wasn't, it was, so, I was so tied up in, in, in making records and so in love with what I was doing that, you know, I was almost in the studio, you know, I would have to go into the office early and I would have to meet various people, especially when at one point when we, when we took over and, and were overseeing ABC records and all of a sudden now I'm dealing with, you know, with B.B. Um, King and, and uh, some of the acts that they had, uh, Ray Charles and other acts. You know, I had to find material for all of these people and 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 producers and whatever. Um, you know, it was just uh, it was just almost overbearing, but I loved what what I was doing and and I was having fun while I you know while I was doing it. Um, I never thought about that, the money. I never got into that. You know, I, I mean, yeah. So the, you know, you had perks where you if you traveled, you traveled first class, and and they would you know you could. They would give you a car every two years you get a you know, a new car from the company. All those things were fantastic. But it was really, um, to be honest with you, you know, if you have a hit record and every time I would have a record that would go to like number one and and everybody we'd have a party and, and you know, everybody would would you know and we'd have cake and whatever and everybody's so excited and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, what 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 do we have for a follow up? I'm I'm already thinking ahead. <laughs> you know um yeah. what are we going to do you know for the next single is the next single going to be as good as that so
0: it's it's fascinating i mean you do your reputation is not at all of uh I mean I didn't read a bad word about you which is you know uh which is for a record guy that's that's um I mean I'm sure someone I could dig up something but really your reputation was so positive. Uh you were working as you said with the grassroots and you know I should also point out that you produced those first couple PF Sloan records. Uh you are the you know the sole credited producer and those are fantastic uh records. What what about P- uh, Phil's claim that Mobsters uh, made him sign away his publishing forever and ever. I mean, is that, did, from your point of view, did that really happen? Uh, do you know?
1: No. No, there's an awful lot, um, you know, that I, I don't know the stories he came up with. You know, we I, we knew each other so well. Uh, you know, I also, you know, I, I know he told stories that he met Elvis Presley and, you know, uh, he, he never met Elvis Presley. <laughs> we knew that Elvis never gave him a guitar. He, you know, I think those were all things to, to try to embellish this this um, image that he was trying to create for himself. Um, well, did, no, did he was, sign was, away the publishing? No, of course not. He still has, you know, I mean, uh, what happened was um, because he stopped writing songs, you know, um, at one point, the uh, Jay Lasker, who was the president of the company, um, told him, you know, we, we were trying to get him to go in and, and you know his mom also who we were friendly with you know is telling us you know we got to try to help him you know he's he's kind of losing his ways hanging out with bad people you know he's you know he's getting into this drug drug scene and so we try to get him to go in to you know to rehab which I think he did a couple of times but Jay Lasker, what he did was he said look if you don't you know if you don't um uh, you know, start writing songs again. I'm going to put a hold on your royalties, and so for a, a quite a while, I think that's what happened. Um, I spoke to Phil. I don't know, maybe ten, maybe ten, fifteen years ago. You know, we were talking, um, and I was asking him about some songs that uh, that we had because somebody wanted to change some of the lines on something. And I just called him. I said, you know, what? How do you feel about that? You know, it'll you know put it in the movie. I said. And it'll it'll give us a you know like a good um, sink fee. We'll probably get like twenty thirty thousand dollars. He says, well, I don't I don't get any money from from a, from you know from my royalties anymore. I said that can't be. Our royalties now are you know it's more than it's ever been. Why why wouldn't you get royalties? He says, well, they don't give me any. Well, apparently he signed something you know with the company that said that you know um, if if he doesn't you know um, continue to write that they can hold back his royalties. So I, I actually put him in, in touch with a, an attorney and the attorney went to ABC and ABC. Eventually he got all those back royalties. So, um, um, and, and then he started to get his royalties again at the end, but uh, there were never any mobsters or anything like that. That's silly. Although, although on the East coast, I know that, you know, I know that there were a lot of stories, you know, within the the uh, confines of the Brill Building, you know, where mobs, you know, Mavs Morris was Levy about and all those guys, Mavs. yeah, Mor- yeah, well, Morris. I tell Morris the story all the time.
0: Well, it's very interesting because I mean, P.F. Sloan told me, you know, on this show that uh, they showed him, you know, pictures of. Uh, dismembered bodies and said, this is going to be your whole family if you don't. And he said that yeah. he lived very, like a, a pauper's life because he never got this money. It's it's quite quite interesting.
1: Part of that is too because he wasn't getting his royalties. I yeah. couldn't believe that, you know. But he uh, didn't, didn't say at the end went. he
0: got it all back, which is such a huge oh, yeah. part of the story to oh, leave out.
1: Oh, oh yes, he got all of his royalties. In fact, um, you know, I'm now dealing with uh, with the attorney that, you know, that takes care of his estate because, right. um, you know, we, we've got, uh, you know, quite a, quite a bit of money coming in on some of our songs. So
0: I'll bet yeah, he, do.
1: He, yeah, he eventually, you know, got, got all that money.
0: Alright, let's talk about the next chapter, like you, because the next chapter is huge. Uh, you start working for ABC. Uh, one of the first things, uh, you get a number one hit producing Tommy Rose Dizzy, and I noticed the arrangement is by Jimmy Haskell. Tell me about arrangers, uh, and how that worked. Would you give them a demo? How would, it, how would they work up the arrangement?
1: Well, when with with Tommy first of all when, when we when um I became the vice president of A&R for ABC Donna when the companies merged Tommy was one artist I, I was fascinated with because I was a Buddy Holly freak and to me you know Tommy's record of Sheila and some of those early records he always reminded me of Buddy Holly yeah absolutely. So I thought I'd love to make some records with him and he had this one song Dizzy and um, and then a couple of others. The two others that we had were the ones I thought were great. We, we went into the studio, and what we would do is just go in with chord sheets, with just a, an outline, and then the musicians, it would come to life in the studio. Sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. Most of the times it would because of the great musicians we had. And so we would cut, you know, a basic rhythm track, and then... We decide, you know, okay, if I, do I want to add horns to this, you know, or do I want to add strings, whatever. And then I would hire, um, a, uh, you know, an arranger most of the time, Jimmy Haskell, because I love working with him. And I would just kind of, he would put a, uh, he would, we, I'd play the, the track and the, and the vocal on there. And then he would put a, he had this little tape recorder and I would just kind of sing along with where I felt. Strings should come in and kind of what they would play, and then he would just make magic from what from the terrible things I was humming, <laughs> you know, and to these great strings. the The funny thing is, is that uh, on you know on Disney, uh, I didn't, I never thought that that was. I thought it was too bubblegum and it wasn't the one I liked. So there again, you know, uh Tommy kept saying, you know, I think we should. That's the he said my that's the kind of record my fans like. I said okay, I said let me get Haskell, let me see if we can do something. To make it really stand out, um, and um, so Jimmy wrote those great string arrangement, and yeah. uh, you know that was probably the biggest single I ever had. I think we sold five million copies of that record. It sounds so, yeah, th- you know, fresh so there you go, you know with, with great you know with my so called great ears. I never heard that one as a hit until the <laughs> strings were on, Then I said, you know maybe this could maybe this could really happen.
0: Uh, 1969. Uh, pe- uh, people, I think, don't, don't know that you produced Mama Cass's solo records, which are fantastic-sounding records. Who found the song Make Your Own Kind of Music? Who brought that in?
1: That was brought in, sent to me by, you know, uh, the Brill Building Songwriters, talk about them, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil we, I, I think we did three or four of their songs. I was always a tremendous fan. You know, they were kind of idols to me, because when, when, Phil, when I started, Sloan and I started at Screen Gems, Screen Gems was was part of all the music and all the music that Donnie Kirsten started in New York. It's all part of that that fantastic Brill Building period where, you know, uh, fifty fifty percent of all the hits, you know, coming out uh, on record at that time were coming out of the Brill Building by all those great songwriters that were writing there. So um, I, I was always a, a big fan, naturally, of Carol King's and, and Man and Wiles and whatever, and so. Um, Cass when when i met with Cass, i said you know what what kind what are, what are you looking to do and and you know she says i don't know she said um you know i just like to sound i want to i want to make records that sound different than what i was doing with the mamas and papas so i said what about something um w- when i spoke to barry mann and he said what kind of things you're looking for you know i said something you know from cast because she's kind of a free spirit or whatever you know something that would just say you know hey you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna now do things my way or whatever. And that's all I said and then a couple of days later he said, What about something called Make Your Own Kind of Music? And then um he did the demo and I said, Boy, it's perfect. So, you know, we went in and, and recorded that and uh, you know, it obviously became a big hit.
0: One of the things I noticed about uh, Mama Cass is it had two Mama Cass albums come out in one year. I mean that kind of you know, I mean if just a few years later people like Fleetwood Mac were taking, you know five years to get a snare sound or whatever but like two albums in one year you're because, because is that just because you're working with arrangers and great songwriters and these guys who can knock out uh you know a, a song or a song or two or three every session
1: well it wasn't my preferred way of doing things but the the uh Jay Lasker who is now president of ABC Dunhill you know they when you're when you become a corporation and all of a sudden now uh, you know, you've got to meet certain numbers and budgets and, uh, you know, it was stuff that drove me crazy. I tried to avoid it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they always wanted more records by the artists that, you know, that meant billing for them. So, it, you know, we were always pushing Steppenwolf and, and uh, Three Dog Night and whatever to, to give us more product. Um, I wasn't part of that. And the reason you probably don't hear, you know, people, you know, um, talk about me, you know, the way they may talk about record labels is because, the one understanding I had was, you know, I I just talked to everybody about, about creative, what they're going to do creatively. I I never talked. I I don't I didn't even know what anybody's deal was or anything like that because we had attorneys and we had people that did the budgets and everything. I was just involved creatively. And I always was very supportive of the artists because, you know, to me they were, they were our lifeblood. And uh, I always tried to make them happy eventually when I left ABC Records and, and I went with, I was offered a, a job to be the, um, um, the the vice president of A&R at Capitol Records at the time, but I wanted to be Warner Brothers, just go to Warner Brothers, just to be part of that um, uh, A&R staff because I just felt that Warner Brothers was such an artist, artist-oriented label that I just, and I loved the people there, I were very friendly with them, and, you know, that I felt like... That was where I would feel, you know, best being and, and the, you know, uh, it turned out. It turned out to be. You know, I was very happy over
0: there. Uh, you worked with Del Shannon, the great Del Shannon, on a few singles. You worked with such a yeah. a, a, a range of folks: Rosie Greer and Lancelot Link. And these are folks that you <laughs> produced, You right? You produced the the uh, a group of monkeys. Uh, one of my favorite singles, "Don't Pull Your Love" by Hamilton Joe Frank and Reynolds. What a record that is! 1971, sort of one of the last few uh, Wrecking Crew records. Uh, yeah. Why, d- I assume that's one where everybody sat in the recording studio and said, "Okay, this song is going to be a giant hit. Is that right?
1: Well, um, to be honest with it, it was a song I had signed two writers. I had signed Dennis Lambert and Brian Potter to our label because I, I always felt whenever I heard good songwriters, you know, I wanted to get them, you know on the label because we always needed songs for various artists. um you know, Three Dog Night didn't write, and I was always looking for songs for them, and the grassroots didn't really write. Um, A lot. And a lot of our artists didn't. So um, uh, Lambert and Potter wrote this song and I thought it would be a a smash for the grassroots. They they don't remember the fact that I played it for them and they didn't like it. They didn't want to do it. They thought it was, you know, too bubblegummy. So I told them, I said, you know, I, you know, I said, I'm going to find an act to do this record. I said, this is a hit record, especially, you know, with that title and especially, you know, um, it's just so catchy and so hooky. So, you know, we we, uh, we found this group that we felt were real good, and we went in, uh, you know, to make that record. We put it out at the same time. I remember um, traveling with our promotion man, Barry Gross, and we went out with that and uh, and, uh, and Two Divided by Love, which was a grassroots record at the time. Um, and we went out to all these various ra- record stations across the country. He um, thought it'd be cool if I went out there, and, we, and you know, we tried to get both of those records on the air. We got the grassroots record on Pretty easily, it was a little bit of a fight for um, the Hamilton Show, Frank and Reynolds, but eventually, you know, the way the business was back there, where you start records in various different areas and it builds, you know, not like it is today. Um, and it started wherever it got played; it just took off immediately.
0: Yeah, it's such a great record. It's one of those records that still gets played a lot. You know, when people think of the classic '70s records, it's funny there were records that were bigger hits that you don't hear anymore, but for some reason, that's one of those records that you still hear. Yeah. Uh, all the time so you, you the, the, it's funny how the grassroots went from being a fake group to actually becoming a real group and uh you produce, they had some huge hits i mean they dominated like midnight confession and sooner or later we heard I Get So Excited earlier. Uh, those were just, again, you you do sort of have this knack for slightly bubblegummy, super sticky, pop hook records. Uh, the Four Tops, Ain't No Woman Like The One I Got You co-produced. Bo Donaldson, The Haywoods, Billy Don't Be a Hero, 1974, you produced. Right. That was a huge record. I mean, I was 10 years old when that came out. That was a giant, giant record. Uh, people don't know you produced Kinky Friedman. Uh, and then you had these three huge hit records. I think they were, uh, you had Welcome Back by John Sebastian. You co-produced it. It was number one. You had the theme from SWAT. Uh, you co-produced with Michael O. Martin, uh, number one. And Top 5, the Happy Day song by Pratt and McLean. Those yeah. are three those are three giant hit records. I mean, that's crazy, you know. You, 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 like the chapters of your career are just going on and on.
1: Yeah, well, you know, things happen like that. You know, I'll tell you the quick story of uh, of the um, theme from SWAT again. You know, now this was a record. You know, my my young son at the time had a friend, and they would play. They watched the television show. Swat and they loved it and they would go around running around you know bang bang and then they would <laughs> they, they loved that theme and so one day well, my son said you know they did you know can you get me by, uh, get me that record and i said uh, all right i know barry divorce who wrote it you know let me see I'll, I'll call him so when i called him and you know he said you know hey he said why don't you make a do you know make a record of it because you know i, I don't have a label or anything so um i was i was um about to leave abc and so at the end of the session we just did an arrangement on it real quickly and um you know it, it came out great with great musicians jay graden and O'Mardian and, and you know all, all these great musicians and uh, so um I, I did the track on it and um everybody liked it so much they said you know why don't you finish it up put some strings and horns on so we did that and um the the record really started in the dance clubs so we did a disco version you know a stretched out you know five six seven minute version of it and it started to really explode in the clubs and because all of a sudden that thing became a hit you know everybody in the business that had a television show started calling me to record you know their songs the first the first person was when I when I I made my move to Warner Brothers um, you know, I had met with John Sebastian, who I loved and, uh, you know, was thrilled to work with him. And so he had told me, he'd you know, written a song for this new welcome back cottage show. And, um, and you know, would I put, you know, can I make it, uh, into a record? He had already laid out the foundation of that. So all I did was kind of produce it as a record and stretch it out. But yeah, that became a hit. And then, then they came to us. Uh, I got a call from Gary Marshall who, I, you know, I, I didn't want to do any more of those things because I was wanting to get into you know producing more folk rock kinds of things and and more you know important kind of album kind of artists. But you know, Gary Marshall was just you know I couldn't resist him. So so we made a record of uh, of that and that became a hit as well. Those are the first couple of things that we did at uh, uh, you know at Warner Brothers Records. And then Alan O'Day, who uh, was a you know who I knew because he was somebody that was always pitching me songs came to me with this song called Undercover Angel. And I, I said, Jeez, you know, that's a smash idea. So I wound up you know, producing that record for him.
0: Also number one hit, uh, 1977. And that's a lot of number one hits. I mean, do you, th- do you think you get respected as, I mean, you know, you, you've, you've had a hand in so many hit records. And like I said earlier, it's absolutely true that you had more success uh, after P.F. Sloan than, than with P.F. Sloan. Don't you think that's true?
1: Oh, yeah, there's no question about it because, you know, that, that only lasted a couple of years. Oh, yeah. I, you know, to this, to this day, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I always, um, you know, wonder what it would have been like had he just, you know, kept on the straight, you know, uh, and and narrow the way we were and, and we kept writing for other people, I think we would have written more hits because I think we were getting better and better at it. Yeah. Um, you know, my dream was to be the next Gotham and King or the next Man in Wheel. And, you know, Phil's dream apparently was to be the next Bob Dylan or the next John Lennon. And so, you know, at that point, there's really no, you know, reason to go on. But I always felt, you know, I wish we would have because I really enjoyed writing, you know, the way we were writing. But, you know, as it turned out, you know, I just always had an ear for, you know, for hit songs. I started as someone that wanted to be a disc jockey. And, you know, so my big thing was always, you know, I could just tell the first time I heard some songs, if you know that, that I, I would say, geez, that that could be a hit. So um,
0: <laughs> it is amazing, you know. That's a really interesting idea of what if you guys had stayed together, and it is kind of a. Uh yeah, we'll never know, but it's, you can sort of only imagine. Yeah, yeah, I think your fingerprints are all over so many records that, uh, clearly there's, you know, no matter how humble you are, there's, you know, there's the, the thing in common is you. So you have to kind of give yourself some credit for them. Uh, you worked with tons of people. You worked, uh, in Motown in the 1980s, which was kind of a weird time for them, but you worked with some of their huge artists and, and, and kind of rejiggering their, uh, their back catalog. You did some, um, nineteen eighty nine you had a top ten single with Animotion. You did more producing some management uh and then now you said you're you're teaching and I guess uh during all this you managed to raise a family, is that right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I have two um um two grandsons now. I have two sons, two grandsons, and one of my, my youngest grandson, whose name is Matt Barry, uh, currently is a he's like into, you know, the um EDM music, you know and no. um he's he's got uh you know record out there now you know or, or I don't know d we don't call them records anymore, but <laughs> um you know he's, he's got uh music out there now that's he's got like fifty sixty thousand um you know hits on and um he's started to really make a name for himself so in fact i'm I'm working uh you know with him on a couple of things, but he's you know i i you know he's an, that's a it's a whole different world to me that the you know the e d m thing but um
0: yeah well, I'm sure that for you managing your back catalog, just the publishing rights, like you said, just people from movies or television or ads or whatever, I mean, that must be almost a full-time job if you if you want it to be.
1: Well, you know, I do as much as I can, you know, pitch some things along the way. Um, I'm very, very happy with, um, you know, doing this uh, these lectures that I do. I spend hours a day editing various clips together of, of artists that um, um, I'm, I'm doing a course now over at um, – the Skirball Center here in LA where they they have a big exhibition of all Leonard Bernstein's um, memorabilia. And um, I've been doing lectures on Leonard Bernstein music and West Side Story. I'm drawing like huge crowds for these things. So people, you know, seem to be into it. And I I grew up, um, you know, uh, a Broadway baby. I grew up in New York and seeing a lot of Broadway shows. So I know, that music very well and I do courses on the on the Great American Songbook and that's been fun and I really enjoy, you know, just uh, talking about the music, all the great music that uh, you know, that I grew up with
0: Well, Steve Barry, it's, this has been so fun, I mean, this just, every great song has a great story behind it and there's so many uh, great songs connected to you. Uh, thanks for taking a minute to, to visit with us. How about we hear Summer in New York, since it is Summer in New York right now Yes <laughs> How, Anything I um, need to know? Any more do we need to know about this record?
1: No, other than it was my reflections
0: of, of what
1: it was like for the summers that I did spend there. And, um, and uh, you know, Bones Howled production on it, which I thought was real good. My singing, not so good, but whatever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love this record. Well, uh, thanks so much for visiting us, and, uh, and thanks for, for all the great records. Sure.
1: Okay, well, thank you. Oh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm.